0: This is Hillary. Welcome to Index for Continuance, a podcast on small press publishing, politics, and practice. Today, we're talking to the writer Sarah Rose Etter, who used to host a reading series, uh, co-host a reading series in Philadelphia called Tire Fire. And we're going to get into the history of that and um, other folks who were involved. but we wanted to use our, this conversation as an occasion to talk about reading series in general, like what it's like to host one, how to do it, give some tips for people who are interested to do that work. Basically, one goal we have with this podcast um, is to give some information on how to do this work of literary editing, publishing, and programming. Um, for those of you who have ever like tried to start a new project or maybe teach editing and publishing, it can be a little surprising um and disorienting how little formal information there is out there Um, like if you want to find out like how to be a good editor or how to run a good literary program it's not as though there's going to be like a lot of books or essays talking about that work from the inside um, and talking about people's experiences in doing it kind of welcoming new people into that work or giving you some company if you're trying to do it you're solving some problems that you're like or trying to solve some problems that you're like I know people have (laughs) other people have worked on this other people have faced issues like this or have tried to figure out how money should work or what this program should be like etc or how to kind of balance x and y you know, there aren't like textbooks or there aren't um necessarily accounts from the inside of that work the information tends to flow kind of informally or through conversation or through things you can pick up by knowing people but that's not necessarily um totally like welcoming or accessible um, and we've talked about that before so i wanted to have at least one conversation that was about readings and about like what it's like to host a reading series and how you figure out what you want to do with your series and accomplish those goals, how you think about, like, what are reading series good for? Like, what are readings good for? What are the different goals they can achieve? Um, how do you want yours to feel and be and what audience and purpose do you want it to serve? Um, and also for writers, like to think about like, (laughs) how to give a good reading why do we give readings how to find your kind of voice and approach to performance um I feel like we're often left to sort of figure those things out on our own and you can I mean going to like one million readings helps um you understand what they can be like and what they're up to um but at least for me when I started you know being invited to give readings, I felt like I had no idea what to do Uh, and just had to spend some time figuring out what was a relationship to the work that I could share publicly and kind of perform and offer in a room. So we're going to try to talk about some things like that, which I hope might be helpful for people at all different kinds of stages and thinking about these things. And also because our relationship to them changes over time and project to project and with different things we're trying to do. And the other thing I wanted to do with this conversation was talk to someone who worked really, really hard on a literary project um, for a few years and, and is looking back on it. I like to talk to people who are in different stages of like their relationship to, to some work. People who are like, have been doing it for 20, 25 years and are maybe stepping away. They're handing it off people who are in the thick of it who are picking up um a project a press or a series or whatever it is a journal that belonged to someone else for a long time and now they are um making it their own while also honoring everything that that it's done um and people who you know kind of intensely did something and now they're up to something else I think these are all like important stages in in the lives of people doing cultural work, particularly when it's a mixture of paid and unpaid work. So you kind of are figuring out how to make a life out of those things. Um, so let's hear from Sarah. Hello. Hello, Sarah. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Hello, congratu- well. <laughs> It is I. <laughs> um, congratulations <laughs> on your new novel, Ripe, which yeah. I want to tell everyone will be out in July. Is that right? Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Yes. Awesome. I'm so excited. <laughs> We're excited. Um <laughs> yeah. I can't, I haven't gotten to read it yet, as we just discussed. <laughs> I have to wait. <laughs> um, so I I was thinking as I wrote these questions that there's like not any subjects I don't want to talk to you about. <laughs> but for the sake of this podcast, I wanted to talk to you about a reading series that you used to co-host in Philadelphia called Tire Fire. Um and I'll give what well, I think is the chronology, and you can correct me, which is that you and the, the writer Christian Tabordo co-founded the series. Um, and then eventually you and Annie Leontis hosted it after Christian moved. And now it is with Jamie Fontaine and Mike Ingram. And it took place in this great bar called Tattooed Moms, which people might remember if they've been there for its graffiti and for the bumper cars you could sit in. So for this, this podcast is about like kind of small press politics, publishing practice, community, you know, beyond small presses too. Um, And so I was thinking, I wanted to do an episode about readings, which are such a like vital and lively site of community and a place where like writers meet each other, kind of writers meet readers. Um, people get to like go to new cities and encounter their like scene and what's happening there. And also where like, the work has this life that's embodied and that's in the writer's voice and that's performed and ephemeral. And it's, it's special. It's like happening just that night in just that room, right? It's like different from the life of the book. Um, and even though this is like such a big part of what, you know, we all go to a lot of readings, uh, for working writers, we like give a lot of readings, but like, how do you find out how to, do one. (laughs) Like, it's not like there's like books out there or like theories on how to run a good reading series. Um, and I host one now at the CSU poetry center, um, which is like kind of for the university and it's like based in the poetry center. Um, and even though it's like each event only lasts a few hours, I think about it like so much, (laughs) you know, and try to think about like, what makes, what will make this good? And like, what is the definition of a good reading for this series? Like, what am I trying to achieve here? And like, who's it for and how do I get them here and all of those things. So I wanted to talk to you because I think of Tirefire as just like one of the best, um, like overall reading series I've ever gotten to attend. And I've said this to you before, and I think it probably seems like, <laughs> Like I was exaggerating, but I think of you as the best reading series host in America.
1: Okay. <laughs> like, I just okay. like, yeah, I I I just, you like miss seeing that <laughs>
0: um, No, that's what we're sticking with. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Um, I'll, I'll say more about kind of why, but uh, if it won't embarrass you too much, um, or even if it does, I guess, but like, so first I just wanted to ask you kind of like how Tower Fire came to be, um, how you would describe Of its mission and what it was up to, like what you guys were trying to do with that series at that time.
1: Yeah, I think maybe Christian had a friend in town and invited me to read with his friend. And then after that night, we were like, why don't we just make this a thing? And we both had a lot of friends who were writers. And I think, you know, we never started out with any kind of real mission, we just started piecing things together. And you know, it's kind of like I don't know. I didn't. I don't think I've ever seen this movie. But what's that movie where they say if you build it, they will come? Oh, Field of Dreams. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some classic Kevin Costner. Exactly, yeah. It was exactly like that. <laughs> um. You know, we were just messing around, and I think there was no real. You know, I do feel like there was no real rule book, so we just kind of built it as it happened, and that followed with a bunch of mishaps. I mean one thing I thought about all the time is it's very similar to curation. So what did I think would fit well together? How could I make sure there were people yeah. who were be different from each other? Right? Like you don't want to have a night of all people doing sad people fiction. Right. I just, I won't name where I was, but I just went to a reading a couple months ago or maybe a year ago and it was just all sad shit all the way through. And it's like, yep. what a downer man. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to leave my house to come be this sad. Like, one sad person is fine five sad people over the course of an evening is like way too much for anybody um we also gave pretty good parameters because we know like writers will always read more than you tell them to so we were always like five to seven minutes that's all you get and that helped a lot because it really helped us avoid that one person going to 45 minutes when Mm -hmm. you're all just sitting there like please come on um, you know, and I, th- I think one thing I learned that from running that series is you need to create a situation where no one's reaching for their phone. And yeah. I think that's yeah. even more true today. The minute, the minute somebody is bored enough to pick up their phone other than to take a photo of you reading, you're kind of screwed, you know. But so we started by just inviting friends at first who had books coming out and they were starting to patch East Coast tours together. So we had Pinino um, Roth runs Franklin park reading series in New York. And then I had a friend, um, who had a reading series down in DC and we were kind of shuttling people, you know, all the way down the Eastern seaboard. <laughs> I don't know if that's the Eastern seaboard. I, mean, I don't know what the Eastern seaboard is. I believe, I believe that's to what it is. <laughs> <New> <laughs> yeah. York, Philly, DC. <laughs> um, But I mean, when I say that it was really DIY, like, you know, we were, most of the people were sleeping at our houses, Mm -hmm. you know, that was the the level of, um, you know, most of the time you were going to be on our couch and the bar would give you like free food and free drinks. Um, And that was kind of the deal. Um, And I think, you know, in, in kind of the best way, because we weren't trying to do anything, we ended up doing something. Yeah. Does that answer your question? yeah yeah
0: <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about and um like getting an audience out. Well, first of all, you've already given one great tip, which is to always tell writers a shorter amount of time. You cannot be truthful with people. like if you want them to read for ten minutes, tell them <laughs> like five. seven or eight yeah well, five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um because they they can't do it. um, they just can't. <laughs> like, uh, so I wanted to ask about you know, building an audience or how to like sustain an audience, um, which is something, of course, every series thinks a lot about and kind of sometimes changes over time, you know, like you, you're not totally in control of it, right? It's something that's also happening out there on its own. Um, And so, you know, one question is like, how to both like reliably reach audiences that you kind of know who they are, and you're connected to them. And then also audiences you may not know about yet, or you're not connected to yet, but you want to like both do a good job serving whatever the kind of core audience is, mm-hmm. and also not just serve them, right? So that like new people and strangers or people from kind of like other artistic communities mm-hmm. can hear about it and do and could walk in and like feel welcome and that kind of thing. Um And also like, I think even when, you know, we as the people like curating a series or events like that, like we know a lot about, the people in the room or like the aesthetics that we're interested in, we also don't want to just do that, right? Like we want to like challenge our own expectations or theirs sometimes or do something that's a little different. So um, I wanted to ask just about how you went about like kind of establishing and sustaining an audience. And maybe that has to do with like what writers you choose or also like how you outreach or like what factors
1: did you find yourself thinking about or kind of working on? Um, well, there's one thing that I think is more important now than it was then, which is making a cool looking flyer, like, (laughs) especially because of like Instagram, um, I would download, if I was doing this now, I would download this, um, design program called Mm canva.com, which is like lay out all my blurbs and stuff. Um, it needs to be just an eye-catching flyer is the first thing. And that has a couple different things. One, any kind of really cool branding makes the people who are coming more excited to share it. Right. So That you want to make people feel like they're coming to something that's really awesome and really Mm -hmm. thought out. And so part of that is like your presentation, make a little logo, have a have a point of view on like how you're going to lay out that information so that people get excited to see it every time is one thing to think about. The second thing is we always had what I would call the hometown hero, which is that we had to make sure that since we had people coming from out of town, there was going to be like a local anchor that would always bring somebody in you know, because every city yeah. has their like writers that everybody loves and will show up for. And if you don't have a couple of those on the lineup and you just bring all out of towners, mm-hmm. the odds that people are going to come out for that, unless you've got a big, big name. And even if you do have a big name, you still want to nod to your community and like mm-hmm. help raise those people up. So um having a really close connection with the up and comers and giving your young writers a chance to read with big names is huge and that also helps you expand your audience because your younger writers your newer writers they're going to bring a whole different generation of people who might not even be writers who might just be their friends, and they find out about you like some of the biggest fans of tire fire were probably friends of people who read there, and then just got really into it and wanted to come back. Um, you know, and the thing the other thing about um audience is you can't really predict a lot of things, but there's a couple things you can keep a look out for. Take a look at the calendar of events and don't have the reading when there's a big person in town or the, you know, the local college is having a reading, right? Mm-hmm. This doesn't sound like a big deal, but I'll never forget. I think we threw a reading like the same night that like, some band was playing and nobody showed up because it was like everybody was at that show. And it's like, you know, you just don't want to bother putting that much effort into something if you're going to do it the same night that like, you know, the hottest band in the world is playing in your town or, you know, um, some giant writer has shown up for a college event down the street. So just keep Mm -hmm. an eye on the calendar and try to find, you know, those kind of dates and times that aren't going to like set you up to fail Um, I forget who it was I want to say it was like somebody like I don't want to if it was like Jay-Z or something I don't know somebody was playing and like no one came and I was like god damn it like boiled again by Jay-Z um I but anyway uh so that's one thing the other thing is definitely get people from different colleges that are nearby uh to read for you um Mm -hmm. that's another really cool way to bring in community especially if you're in a place where like you might be on a state border and there might be like a school that's in a different state nearby. Like we would always have people from um, Jersey come down and from Rutgers Camden, right? Like that was a good university for us to have people come from. Um, Yeah, just kind of looking for work that you're really excited about. I mean, it really gave you a reason to keep an eye on like new writers who you could get excited about and then you start going the other good tip is to go to other writing series right and like see people read. you have there's no other way to decide who you want on your lineup than to see them read and so you definitely are kind of scouting a little like you want to do a little bit yeah for sure yeah
0: I was thinking as I was like getting ready for this I was trying to come up with a sort of taxonomy of reading series, like literary reading series. Um, And here's what I came up with and you can see what you think. And if it's useful, which is like, I was like, okay, there's like bookstore series, um, which are like part of a book tour. You get a new book out, you hit the bookstores. It's a hugely important way to sell books and like connect with readers and booksellers, you know, do so much publicity, right? They spread the word about a book. So big source of sales but it's also like not all writers can get in a bookstore in a way, right? Like bookstores tend to be a little bit more selective or they're hooked into some national tours. They're doing a balance of national and local events. And so maybe like smaller press writers are less likely to be able to do that all the time. Um, Or, you know, speaking to those of us, those who've had this experience, sometimes we do it, but like, five people are there <laughs> you know like which is generous of the bookstore to be like just like okay you can come read here and you're like oh i thought maybe there was more of a built-in like audience um you know so it, it's like they have to balance what sort of event is worth it for them to be open and um run the event et cetera, which totally makes sense but it means like maybe some writers need some different options so bookstores then the next t- type is like the colleges and universities um which you mentioned where people come as a visiting writer and they, you know, give often a craft talk or lecture and they speak there. And that's like, I would say that plays in a special role as a source of income for writer, you know, cause you get paid by a college or university. Um, you know, it might range from a few hundred bucks to, you know, some writers are getting paid 10,000, 30,000, $50,000 for those events. Um, and it's like, They play a kind of educational role you're connecting with emerging writers and students, which is exciting. It's probably less about selling books, but it is about like being out there uh, Mm -hmm. connecting with people. And then the last category was more like it was like bar series or community series or ones that might be in someone's house, like we hold readings in our house sometimes like that are just they're more DIY or they're like not connected necessarily to an institution exactly. So maybe you're figuring out more who your audience is or, or what they're doing. Um, so, I don't know, I was curious like what you thought of as the role of like kind of like a bar series or a place, you know, like it's at night, it's it's maybe like
1: fun, <laughs> it's not hooked into <laughs> anything else. Well, and I, you have
0: a lot of freedom as a curator in that space.
1: Yeah. I will say this, like, this probably kind of leads to another tip. We did get to a point where when people came to Philly for the college reading, for the bookstore reading, they would come to Tyre Fire after. Like cool. I think I remember Kelly Link came and did a reading at like Temple and then made it just in time to be like the final reader. At oh Fire. yeah,
0: I was there for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah.
1: So we did get to a point where they realized it was giving them a chance to reach like a packed room of people mm-hmm. who were passionate. And by that point we had in the beginning, we just had people selling their own books. And then we got to a point where we did have a local bookseller that would come in and handle all the sales and have like a square account and just, you could buy the books that way. Um, And, you know, so people were, you know, moving copies for sure. Um, And so I think there's something different. You can let your hair down, you can curse, you can be a little less perfect and you mm-hmm. don't need to be so buttoned up and academic you know if it really I did feel like what we were trying to do was a, like almost indirect opposition to what happens at a college where you need to present this very professional very cleaned up kind of like your blouse is buttoned all the way up vibe and then like just here's a chance to just be a person and mm-hmm. like and have fun and engage with a room of people and there's no signing line you're probably going to sign books but you're going to sign them at the bar and people are going to want to talk to you after and it was just a different energy than you know that idea of like I don't know it did feel like people were there less to network and more to just get to know each other Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even when the big writers came it didn't feel like um as I don't want to say ladder climby, but it, it you know, it just it, people weren't there for that necessarily. They were there to see a really good reading and maybe say hi afterwards and do a shot. <laughs> yeah.
0: and I feel like people really did stick around after and really did chat. You know, like it yeah. had that energy. Like people weren't like kind of like go sign books decorously at a table or it yeah. doesn't have that same defer deference or deferential
1: energy where like you're the special person that people are yeah, sort of differing there to. There was something about not having them sit behind a table Yeah, at the end. You know, I mean, it just, I think there was something that made them more like human and made it less like, I'm the writer, you're the audience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that maybe led to more like actual friendships versus like, you know, and, and again, like I understand the function of the college reading and the bookstore reading, but we did kind of have that energy of like writers after dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <You> know, <Yeah. laughs> like, we're we're going to have so much. It felt like it's like a salon in the old days sometimes, you know? Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: I think it's like, I mean, obviously not everyone has to want exactly but you know, like, but just speaking for myself, but I think also some others. it's like a lot, it's really nice for the writer. Cause it's, a, you know, it's a lot of like, pressure. Like it's nice to be in a setting where you're like a visiting expert in a way, or you're, but you're more in a persona. And so there's something really freeing about being in like a space that's loose and has some energy in it and where you get to really talk to people and it doesn't, you can say whatever, like you don't well, need to worry about like, Oh, what did I just say that person's student? Oh my God. you know. You know like,
1: there's this other thing that is kind of another tip is like we were always looking for someone who we would sometimes have this motto of putting the best reader first in the lineup, which is the opposite of what you would think usually you have the quote unquote like lesser writers kick things off. But there's something about putting a great reader first that makes everyone else step their game up and I do think this is something else that the writers were getting that they might not get it at college. They were getting kind of challenged because Mm -hmm, you don't mm -hmm. go up after some ballsy twenty-five-year-old with a ninety-page poetry (laughs) chapbook just got up and completely crushed it and did a reading that like floored everybody in ten minutes, and then be like, "Hey, Mm -hmm. it's me, hi." Right? You you could see that the rest of the people reading you they started getting more energetic. They started pulling out tricks from the hat. Right? So. Um, I think that's another reason it was easier to attract writers is it was inspiring to them. I hope too, on some level,
0: I think that's true. And that's what I was going to ask you about was like, just like the concept of energy, which I think is like, it's, I don't know. I find it hard to talk about without just being like, we're talking about like vibes or something. And then I was like, (laughs) you know, when I was (laughs) like, like, how do you curate the vibes, but you, but people do. And like you were, and like people are whenever they're in a space like that, they're, whether they're doing it actively or just passively. Um, And I was thinking about, uh, you know, I just like, I was very impressed with how you did it. And I was like, I don't even think, I was like, I don't think Sarah, like you write about visual art, but I don't know if you write about like performance arts, you know? And I was like, but it really is a kind of performance. And I was thinking like, one, if there's energy in the room, it, it, it's not just that it's there and people are experiencing it, but also it allows for more, more energy. Like it allows for more responsiveness and it lets the room go from one thing to another so that you can have like a funny, you know, piece. You can have something that's really intense. Um, and something that's really experimental or language focused that asks a little bit of a different kind of listening. And you can, you can have all those in a row, but it kind of requires a certain level of energy that lets things feel mo- mobile and like, like they're happening and we can like change and respond. Um, and I was I liked what you said about like challenging. Like I felt like you know, times I read at Tire Fire, I was like, You gotta do a good job. Yeah, <laughs> like, better.
1: <laughs> like, I, I always say that it was my best training as a writer. I think when I was doing Tire Fire, I don't think I was really sure I wanted to be a writer or keep writing. I think maybe I had. The chat book out but I was at a point in my relationship with writing that I knew I loved it but I wasn't really um sure what I was trying to do and that actually made the reading series easier because I, I genuinely didn't have an angle I mm-hmm. just loved, I just loved the work of the people we were bringing in and I you know I don't even think I had I think I maybe had graduated with my master's but I had come out of a program where I didn't really fit in And so I really was in a point of my writing where I just was like, I don't think I really want to do this anymore because I'm making such weird work and Mm -hmm. nobody gets what I'm trying to do. And in a way, like Tire Fire actually became like my MFA cohort, because if I had gone somewhere that was like a stronger program, if, if I could have afforded to go somewhere that was a stronger program, then maybe I would have been pushed in that way. And so I think there was a way where I kind of had one foot out of the door in writing. And by continuing to do that um, series, it was like making me continue to read, continue to engage with the community, continue to like, I, you know, I, it made me not like go all the way. Um, yeah. And I, you know, and I learned a lot. I mean, I learned a lot about, you could see the writers who came and sat in the corner and read really quietly Versus the writers like a Scott McClanahan or a Tommy Pico or a Roxanne or a Carmen Maria Machado who would show up and throw down and Mm -hmm. they would sell like five times as many copies. And it made me realize that like, you know, whenever I teach a class, I only I only do like little, you know, four month classes online when I teach right now um, or four weeks, whatever. But the last one, I always do it on how to give a reading because no one talks about it. And the reality Mm -hmm. is no one is going to show up and sell your book for you. It does not matter if you get to the biggest press in the world. If you get $1.7 million in a book deal, you are still going to be the person that has to get up and present your work to the world. And if you cannot do this convincingly, if you cannot believe in your work enough to stand up and read it in a passionate way to people, then you're really kind of dead in the water because Mm -hmm. nobody can do that it doesn't matter how much money you get how many book deals you sell if you cannot convincingly stand next to your work in a room of people and really believe in what you're writing I would wonder one if you were writing the right thing and two you know then I would say it's time to go to a public speaking class it's time to build out that skill set because if you don't this is going to be miserable like I don't know if you're like this, but I'm at a point now where I don't even have time to get nervous before a reading because I Mm -hmm. do so many of them. And if I was going to get nervous every time I would be collapsed on the floor (laughs) because I have to do it constantly. So it's like, I wish we would talk about it more because it is, if you're a working writer, it's what you're going to do all the time.
0: Yeah. And it's like, you know, I liked what you said. Like the, I think you said, use the word challenging. And I was like, What The word I was thinking was like that it almost felt a little bit dangerous, like the energy in the room. And I mean that in a good way, like it meant like you needed to, you needed to like, in some way, and it didn't have to be one set way, but like share or be in your relationship with the work or like show that the work is meaningful, you know, like be like, this work matters it needs to matter like right now and you need to somehow convey that and people are going to do that in really different ways um and I liked like the word I would sometimes use for your hosting is that it was kind of like anarchic like it was like a little bit it was more like an anarchy where it wasn't like like your important writer has come and you know, one will give like a bio for them and then they will give, um, and I do this all the time. So I'm saying this in a certain tone, but I do it. And I believe, you know, there's reasons we have more formal series and reasons we have other, kind, you know, like, like there are purposes to these different settings. So, but in that, like in that setting, like the writers in a, they're kind of in a weirdly passive position, you know, it's like, and they're in a very kind of protected position. Like it is vulnerable to share your work, but like you're kind of like gonna be okay. Like you're gonna fly there and then you're gonna like fly home and and you know, maybe someone will say a weird thing to you, but probably it's just gonna, you know, like you're kind of protected by status or something. Whereas like in a place like like a tire fire or in that more anarchic space, you're kind of being asked into like someone's like, we're making a thing. Do you wanna come do the fit? You know, like you have to bring something. And it meant like the first time I read there, um. I, you know, I used to get very nervous before readings. And I wasn't nervous to read from the book um, because I did feel like I knew my voice. Um, and I knew like I had a relationship to the voice of the book. And it and I and it was something that was like kind of alive and special to me. So I didn't feel nervous about sharing that because I was like, I know how to read the fucking sentence. <laughs> um, but I hate, I didn't have anything to say right before that. Do you know what I mean? To just be like, what is this book? <laughs> like, why did she write it? Why is it like, a, you know, like just like a little teeny thing that you should say before you start like banter or even an introduction or just like, you know, I, I, that really like, sh- I struggled with that quite a lot. And it took a long time for me to figure out just like, you know, a, a few things to say and a way to say them or something. Because as you noted, there's not like, how do you learn? You just learn by watching people. Um, but there was something about reading at Tirefire that I was like, you need to find that voice, you know, like you need to be in the voice of this novel and make it happen. Um, and I remember like right afterward or something, you, you said that was like a fucked up ballet. And I, and I was so happy because <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh god. That's ex- I didn't, I wouldn't have known to use that phrase, <laughs> but that's what I was aiming for. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it was like but it's also the place helps you do it. You know what I mean? Because you need, you need to, like you need to, you need to be part of things that are happening and show why they matter and that they're alive and that you're there. You're there to show that literature is kind of a
1: living, a living thing. (laughs) Um, and I think, I think there's a way that it could have gone horribly snotty when you say it out loud. Um, Mm -hmm. but I do think that was one thing that was really underscoring. It was like, we're all just people and Mm -hmm. we're all, here to like enjoy work and like it's not a challenge in the sense of like you're not good enough step it up it it was more like when you see other people engaging with the work that they were the way they were you started to want to be able to do that with your own work and figure out like why am I doing this reading why does this matter um and that that is something that still guides me now when I go on book tour is that I know every night I have to just get up and believe in what I'm doing. That that's yeah. it, you know? That's it. Yeah. I have to believe and I just have to care.
0: Yeah. And I think if I made anything sound snotty, then I didn't do a good job because definitely it wasn't the like, <laughs> no. challenge is also like an invitation, right? It's like, and it's sort of an an invitation is generous. It's like we want to hear your we want to hear your thing.
1: Like we want to hear the real thing. Um it wasn't that you want to do. Making it, yeah. It wasn't you making it sound snotty. I just mean on its face. Yeah, I, 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 if you said out loud to me what it was, I might be like, you sound sound like snot, (laughs) you know, Um, so I can see it, right? Like, oh, who do you think you are? Like challenging readers and writers and whatever. Um, But again, it was really, really organic. And, you know, I think it's kind of crazy how big it got because we really, there was no goal in mind. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? There was
0: yeah. no goal. I mean, I love things with no goal. Cause it means they're open, you know, and they like, end up kind of taking the shape of the thing that happened. I don't know. It means they're responsive, but
1: I that's remember, me. And, yeah. I remember it was stressful. Like we would have people drop out two days before get the flu quote unquote, and you would kind of know they were lying and you'd have <laughs> to like figure out what to do with the lineup and trying to get five people in one city at the same time was just always a juggling act. Um, But, you know, you just kind of rolled with it the best that you could. And there were definitely times where we had bad nights. I mean, I remember quite a few nights that I felt like I was like failing and that it was terrible. Um, But then you also had these like giant, beautiful nights that were just like, you know, everybody was on and it was, it was so worth it. So I think that's the other thing in in terms of tips is just like knowing that if you're building something that doesn't exist, like there's going to be nights where it feels so pointless and like you Mm -hmm. mess everything up and, you know, and then there's going to be great nights where you feel like all the art that you've ever wanted to see in one place is like there together and, you know, it's worth it then.
0: Yeah. And you leave, you're like, I want to go home and write. Like, I want yeah. like, to,
1: <laughs> or <laughs> I want to go thing. home and have all these writers sleep on my living room floor and make them nice <laughs> and then hope they leave <laughs> in time for me to go to work. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, like, because we're talking to a lot of people who've done like DIY projects or small presses or things that, you know, I, I think the phrase labor of love brings a lot of problems with it, but, um, but it's like something someone does that's part of more like their writing practice or they're doing it like they write or like they do their art. It's not, it's not a job, right. Um, or it might sometimes be a little bit of a part of a job, but you still wouldn't, wouldn't do it if you didn't want to do it. Um, and it's not really being supported, um, other than maybe like by some other humans or like by a community, um, or like by your own doggedness or something, you know, like, um, so I, you know, you guys were, were making these things happen and like helping support a whole bunch of writers. Right. Um, and you know, I I think probably like in particular, maybe some more experimental writers and and smaller press writers, indie writers, like, you know, also other folks, but like, that's, um, a lot of who is there and that's very generous, right? It's like, you're kind of like volunteering to do that. Um, and you're hosting people in your house and you're, you're a host. <laughs> like, um, so I guess like, yeah, I was just curious to hear your thoughts on the kind of labor that goes into things like that. Um, And I think in my own experience, um, and I, you know, the series I host is definitely part of my job. So I am doing it as a worker with a paycheck. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you can encounter, there's a lot of really beautiful experiences we had and people are excited to be there and they feel grateful to like be in a city and be meeting new city, be meeting people, be having their work be appreciated and listen to, um, and other people who sometimes feel like, well, that the world like owes, owes them this. So mm. they, it's not as, I don't know, like, it's not <laughs> not as much energy I, there
1: or something. <laughs> yeah. We a little bit less of that because we didn't pay.
0: Yeah. You
1: yeah. know, we, all we could offer, and we were still upfront, all we could offer was a free meal at Tattooed Mom and some drinks. Yeah. Um, and that really weeds out anyone who is expecting that they're going to get three thousand dollars for coming to read for 45 minutes like that immediately and, and i think that also lent itself to the indie thing right because mm-hmm. those are the writers who aren't getting twenty five thousand dollars to go to a college um but the thing is that's an investment in them because ultimately that could be the person who becomes the twenty five thousand dollar per visit writer in three years mm-hmm. when their next book comes out you know um But again, I I think it was a combination of one, who were our friends? And it's like, we were both publishing on indie presses. So all of our friends were on indie presses, right? Um, And then two, like who would come and not need $40,000 to show up? Mm -hmm. Um, And and a crazy thing happened. I mean, I think towards the end, I I knew that I was going to step out of it pretty soon because I realized that it was enough work that I wasn't going to be able to write a novel if Mm -hmm. I... Mm -hmm. And I knew I had to stop because, um, like anything I was all in, I was spending so much time on it and I cared so much about it. And I, I, you know, um, but I knew I'm like, I'm never going to finish any work. If I keep being in this bar with these people drinking, (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just, I got, I can't do this because I think it was like, I mean, God, was it six years I did it? I mean, I, it was a really yeah. long time. It was a, it was a really long. And then but towards the end, it had gotten to the point where like, we were selling enough copies that publicists were starting to contact me and send people. And it was like, you know, we had, um, like Roxy and Gay came one night and I remember we had to like send so many people home because they couldn't fit in the bar, And it just got to a point where I was like, this is so much work. And I I, like, not that I needed to be paid for it, but just that had gotten so big and it had also gotten further away from, I I don't say further away from where we wanted to be because, you know, Roxanne came because she was my friend is my friend. Um, But when, when the New York publicists started getting in my inbox, Mm -hmm. trying to send the big press writers, um, that's when I knew it had gone a little bit in a different direction than maybe where we had started out.
0: Yeah. And then it enters a different, I mean, like there could be lots of people in, in that mix that you would be excited to host, but you're also entering into kind of a different economy or something where it, like, doesn't make as much sense to like, then you're the only one not getting paid. <laughs> like, I mean, right? yeah,
1: like, that, that kind of gets to it. Yeah. And there is a different power dynamic when it's a publicist from, a major press that you might want to submit a book to someday asking to send something, send someone. And then the decision to host them starts looking really different. I mean, the other thing is we had very, we definitely had individuals who were super pushy about wanting to read there. And in most of the cases we said no, because they were just so demanding. It will not surprise anyone listening that this was mostly like straight white dudes who were just like adamant that they should be able to read and constantly emailing and, you know, I, I think there was one person I said no to, who then like went on Twitter to announce they were reading, and I was like, no, "You're not, you're not actually reading here. No, you're not. <laughs> Unbelievable, right?" Um, but it is a different dynamic when it's like a major press, and I was, you know, I mean, I hadn't even had my first novel out, and so I did feel ill-equipped to push back. It, it just put me in a place that I didn't, I didn't really understand. Um, and, a, and a bunch of great writers came through that way, right? Like, I don't want to demean that because there were definitely yeah, yeah, people, yeah. you know, who came through that channel, but it was definitely a different, it it marked to me that we had crossed some kind of a threshold.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, we because just like thinking about so many projects that start small and like what happens, you know, what happens when they're really thriving and succeeding, like it, that's a success, but it also changes things or introduces a set of new questions or also like often a set of new like labor problems where you're like, yeah. people can't necessarily keep working, can't scale up their own
1: like or project. Felt, yeah. Or I felt like some of the undergroundness mm-hmm. and like the freedom to just do whatever we wanted. I mean, I don't know if I was reading too much into those requests, but it felt like more to navigate than I was like, I already felt stretched thin and then adding that layer to it. I was just like, I, I don't, you know. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I have just like two more questions. Yeah, um, of course. <laughs> one is about, I mean, we talked about this a little bit, but like about like what the reading adds or does, you know, cause sometimes it's like when you're a writer and going to readings, you're like, is this just like, is this church? Am I like, I'm just like supposed to go and be seen and you know, like, um, or is this like church, like, I'm gonna go and be really like transformed, you know, like is this part of the art or something? And I do, um, I mean, obviously I really believe in them, but sometimes we're like it, it feels like a form that's kind of invented around the book tour or something, or like, how do we think of it? about, you know, contemporary literature or something is, has something that can be performed or should be performed or like what happens at the reading? I don't know. Like, I don't know if you have thoughts on like, what is the magic of the reading or what role it's played for you in your relationship to writing, you know, like to hearing someone read work. And if that changes how you read it or makes you think in new ways about like what's possible or like what people are doing like with their voice or with their,
1: you know, like, I don't know. There's a couple of things that come to mind. The first is that there are certain people when they read that you can feel they're just like holding the room in the palm Mm -hmm. of their hand. They can just do it. And I remember for the first half of book tour for the book of X, I met Tommy Pico at Tirefire. Jamie was hosting. I had just been in the city and I went and Tommy and I met and it was like, we were like instantly best friends. And so I asked him to book tour with me for book of X for a couple of dates on the West coast And um he opened for me and he is a consummate performer. He's a Mm -hmm. poet, but when he gets up, he has like a singing voice he can project, he's got ups and downs. He's like, you know, and so to follow that every night, I I invited him for a reason. And it was because I knew that I would have to learn from him and I had would watch him as a performer and understand how he held the room. And again, I want to underscore like you can hold the room with like a big booming theatrical voice or being really quiet and pulling people in. And, you know, there's all sorts of ways you can do it. um, But all of them require you to be extremely present with the work and extremely thoughtful about it. And, you know, obviously practice reading out loud a bunch beforehand, because there's always something you're going to trip over. Um, But I do remember this night, you know, aside from Tommy, who I think is a really great you know, person to like watch a YouTube of reading poetry, because that can give you an idea of like what it can do if you bring it to life. I remember one of the nights that Scott McClanahan came, um, he pulled his cell phone out of his pocket while he was reading and started playing this like old song like old slow song and like pulled somebody out of the audience and started slow dancing with them while he was like reading from memory his story and then I think he kept screaming over and over and he was in a all white suit like dressed like a southern preacher this night and I think he started screaming like when was the last time you felt joy when was the last time you really felt joy and then he had his pockets full of fake engagement rings. And he started (laughs) getting on one knee and proposing to women in the audience. Um and if you say that out loud, it sounds so corny and it could Mm -hmm. go so wrong. But when he did it, it felt like a magic moment where the text went from being just a story to being a moment that we were all involved in. And it really could have like brought you to tears and made you really ask questions of like when was the last time I felt joy? And like, why am I tearing up watching this madman slow dance with a woman, (laughs) you know? Um, and so I, you know, when I think about reading as performance, he's easy for me to think of because of things like that, because he would pull in these elements that force the audience to engage. And there was like no way to look away from the spectacle of the work of him. Um, so there's many different ways you can do it. And I think it is performance art to some extent, and maybe to a large extent. Um, if you, when you read the text out loud as the writer, it's the moment that you become the work. And so it is going to be a performance piece, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was thinking too about wait, like sometimes you get to see, people be so vulnerable, right? Like people really show you what it took for them to write this or like how much it mattered in their life. And that it doesn't have to be about like events, you know, it could, could be about like, the effort of art or like emotion or just like that to them, it connects to the things that are like most difficult and most dear, you know, like, and you're like, it's really hard to be that. Like, so some of the ones I remember too, it's like, I wouldn't even say that someone had a style exactly. They were just in a public state of like profound vulnerability while also
1: like in art, like sharing an artwork that they have made very carefully. Like I will, yeah. I will never forget the first time I ever did a reading was in grad school. And I had to read a short story that I had written. And it it was so close to real life, the thing mm-hmm. I had written, that I was like kind of crying when I read it and like shaking. And I had never said any of the words out loud. And it was very I don't want to say traumatic for me, but it kind of was, you know, because I wasn't expecting to get up and humiliate myself. I felt humiliated. Yeah. And everyone came up to me after, like, that was the best reading I've ever seen in my life. And I'm like, <laughs> Um, uh, and I, I, you know, I probably didn't yeah, just like eviscerate back. yourself. I was like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I kept thinking to myself, like, oh, okay, so all I have to do is get up and have a complete mental snap in front of you <laughs> about something that's really personal to me. And then I'm going to be a great artist. Yeah. And I realized I had to find a balance between, and this is a good piece of advice for anyone who's listening that is going to go on book tour or whatever. Find your boundary and hold it because you're not, we're not requiring you to get up and completely re-traumatize yourself in front mm-hmm. of an audience. That's mm-hmm. not the ask, right? And especially when you're dealing with work that might be about trauma or mm-hmm. past history, pick something that you can read that isn't going to destroy you because that's not what anyone wants to see, right? It, it might get you a couple pats on the back in that reading room, but you're going to be the one that has to live with the aftermath of it. So being really, really careful about picking something that might be emotionally resonant for you, but isn't going to be your, all of your trauma just dumped out on a room, you know, Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. or yeah, that there might be some pieces that are like farther from the really hard stuff, but which like give you a way to be in it. Um,
1: I don't know. You want to be emotionally tied, but still in control, right? Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, um, and you get to decide that, like you really are the architect of the what what you read and how you read it. You get to decide. And so just not forgetting that, you know?
0: Yeah, that's uh, good advice. Yeah. You've had a lot of good advice. Oh, thanks. I'm going to yeah, pat myself on the back for... Uh...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I try not to curse too much. It was really hard because it's like, you know...
0: Oh, that's okay.
1: Okay. No one. Uh... <laughs> I don't think I. No, I think I didn't curse this time. I've been working really hard on my cursing.
0: Um. Well, I respect that. I respect <laughs> whatever people do that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we don't require it. Uh. I mean, my last question. We chatted a little bit about this before we hit smashed the record button. But um, it's just like I'm. You know, I'm really excited that you have a new novel coming out, and you've had like, you've sort of had a really, you know cool tour of maybe every stop in in u.s publishing you know your first book was out on like a right, like a micro press right like a small press and the classic small press sense, it's a couple people and then you're on two dollar radio which is also like a small team but it's you know a little bit of a larger indie you know has um a little more reach and like staff and things like that and they do just an awesome job right they really um they have a fantastic list and i felt like they i mean i at least from the outside, I was like, they did such a great job with your book and it like got to people yes. I was, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. celebrated and, um, it's really exciting. And now you have a book coming out in Scribner. Um, so you've kind of had this whole range of, um, publishing experiences. I know that this one's still like very much underway, <laughs> like, <'cause laughs> yeah. the book, um, isn't out yet, but I just was just as curious, I don't know of any, reflections you had or thoughts you had on those different, what those different types of publishers are kind of up to, you know, ways that they're complementary and like ways that they've housed, you know, your mm-hmm. like really feminist kind of experimental like work that you're doing. Um, yeah. I don't know.
1: I, I feel like I've gotten really lucky because in every case I have found a publisher that like rose up to meet the work I've gotten very lucky with like cover art that I love in all three cases. And like in a way that like I can stand next to it and feel like it still represents me even after like years go by. Um, I think there's a real disservice that can happen when we all want the seven figure book deal outright. Mm -hmm. And of course that's what every writer wants. Everybody wants to be the six figure advance the darling, you know, all that stuff. But I do say there's something really good about a slow burn where you're making art that you actually believe in. And in none of these cases did I think that's the publisher I want. In mm-hmm. every single one of these cases, I thought this is the art I want to make and whoever took it and all that other stuff just came later. And so if you can release control a little and just let things happen, and, and don't get me wrong, there were times, I mean, um, this is a different interview, but actually going to sell to major publishers is extremely stressful and terrifying mm-hmm. and was probably one of the hardest experiences I've ever gone through. And luckily, I'm on the other side of it with a great book deal. But um, if if each one of these books is a chunk of my heart, which it is, what's the price on that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how how much should someone give me for that? Right. That's the first time I've ever had to ask that question. Yeah. Um, And it's a hard one. Uh, But I just feel super lucky because there are people who have followed me every step of the way. And I think one really great thing about coming up through independent presses is that you find readers who stick with you. And I, I feel super lucky because I know with this book coming out, it's on the, It's from the hard work of booksellers, of readers, of people who like really believe in the work. And so, you know, I'm very lucky that I can come out at a time where there's already people who care and like are excited about it. Um, So I guess my best advice would be make great work and then the people who should publish it will find you and you'll live a very charmed life except for the (laughs) times that you're not charmed. (laughs) <laughs> that's so good. Yeah. Like,
0: when you're like, how much do people pay for a chunk of your heart? You're like, well, either nothing or or everything, or
1: like ho- h- however much they've got. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I guess, like, I guess what I mean is if if yeah, I make I think about it like you're, and this actually does tie back to the reading thing. You're making the work in an introverted bubble that's mm-hmm. very safe and precious, and it's a beautiful space to be in. But when the book gets printed. You get flipped inside out and you need to be able to be extroverted to sell the work. Mm. And, you know, how much is anyone's art worth? That's so arbitrary.
0: Yeah.
1: It's yeah. always, it's always never enough. And it's always also too much money, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, but the, the part of me that makes the work and the part of me that sells the work are two totally different things. And thinking about it that way helps me when it's time to like flip the switch and go from private yoga pants wearing, I'm just scrolling on pages and I've got outlines everywhere to, I have to get up in front of a room of people and read this out loud. Mm -hmm. Like those, those are two different people. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I don't know if that that helps.
0: (laughs) I love it um thank you so much I just yeah, really appreciate getting to talk with you about all of these things and also yeah. I think it's super helpful for folks thinking about a reading series or even me someone who runs one but is still thinking about how to like, how to do it um if
1: you're out there start one we need more
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: <laughs> do it um
0: thank you so much
1: yeah, of course thank you for having me it's so good to catch up